We all have a story to tell, a story of faith that can change the lives of others. Hi, I'm Terry Squires. Join me and my friends each week in the heart of Nashville as they share their stories of faith that will inspire your life. This is today's Nashville. This is Faith. My father said that when the Nazis actually invaded Chinstakhov, that they made his whole family come out on the street. And at that time, he had mother and father and had five siblings with him. And they made them lie down on the ground outside their homes, put their hands behind their back, and they just started separating families. One goes here, one goes there, and he never saw his family again. Later on in life, I learned that my father was the only survivor. My grandmother sent my mother and her younger sister and brother to town to get some groceries because she just knew that perhaps that was the day they were coming in. They didn't know what to expect. But when my mother left to go to the store, she was gone a couple of hours with her younger sister and brother in tow. And when they got back home, her mother was gone and her older sister who had polio, couldn't walk in her life, never saw them again. There was a time in history where it was okay to cry inside, but you would never cry out loud. Lily Isaacs is the matriarch of the award-winning Christian music group, the Isaacs, and she started her journey not as a Christian, but as a young Jewish girl living in the Bronx. The horror of her parents' ordeals surviving the Holocaust and the Nazi murders of her other family members led her to a personal relationship with God. This is her story of unshakable faith. Lily, thank you so much for inviting me into your home. And, you know, I love how God brings people together. We were at an event, and my husband said, would you like to meet the Isaacs? And I said, of course, I would love to. <laughs> and then when we sat and talked a moment, and I was getting ready to go to Israel that next morning, you shared a little bit about your story, and I thought, you have to be on my show. Oh, thank you. And I just love how God just bonded us together at that moment. That was a, truly a gift for me that I got to meet with you and your family. And then you send in me your book, and I read it, and it just touched my heart. It just made me cry reading some of the things. Thank Take you. me back to your history and share a little bit about your story. Well, thank you, Terry, for having me. I'm so honored to be here today. I just love what you do. Um, yeah, so my parents uh, were born in Poland uh, in the 20s. And of course, when World War II broke out in 1939, they were in Częstochow, Poland. They didn't know each other, but they're from the same hometown. And it's interesting because my parents have shared tidbits of their lives with me all of my life. Never go into a lot of detail because they'd shut down after they started talking, but I got enough to know what they'd been through. But um, my father said that when the Nazis actually invaded Częstochow, that they made his whole family come out on the street. 
and at that time he had mother and father and had five siblings with him and they made them lie down on the ground outside their homes, put their hands behind their back and they just started separating families. One goes here, one goes there and he never saw his family again. Later on in life, I learned that my father was the only survivor of his whole family and that was just, I just couldn't believe it because I thought, wow, where did he wind up, you know, anyway. So then my mother, the same thing, when uh, her mother, her father was deceased when she was young, but my grandmother sent my mother and her younger sister and brother to town to get some groceries because she just knew that perhaps that was the day they were coming in. They didn't know what to expect. Of course, they didn't know they were taking, being taken to camps. But when my mother left to go to the store, she was gone a couple of hours with her younger sister and brother in tow. And when they got back home, her mother was gone and her older sister who had polio, couldn't walk in her life, never saw them again. This is just the way life was and uh, eventually they were taken, captured and taken to camps. Uh, my father wound up in Buchenwald concentration camp and then in Dachau. And then my mother wound up in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and then Dachau at the end as well. But they never met till after the war. Uh, they were liberated both of them in Germany from two different camps. And uh, they got met, got married, and I was born in Germany. Uh, and then uh, when I was two years old, we migrated, we came to America. My mother had an uncle that sponsored us, so went to New York City. I don't remember that, but I do remember at the age of nine, my parents and I became American citizens at Ellis Island, and I remember that. So in a nutshell, you know, grew up in New York City, my young life. Well, you know, going back to when your parents were in the concentration camp, did any of their family members survive or? They did, they had some. Of course, my father only had a half brother living. That was it. My mother had uh, two sisters and a brother that survived, but they had escaped to Russia before the war had started. So she had uh, two sisters and a brother that survived and they all moved to New York City. My father's half-brother moved to Australia. So I've never, he passed away, I never got to meet him, but I have two first cousins that I've talked with. So we were scattered pretty much across the world. And do they, did they ever talk more about it or? They have, I think they opened up the most when my kids got old enough to want to ask questions mm -hmm. because when you grow up in an environment, it's like it's life. And you know, it's painful, and I didn't have a really great childhood. My parents were unequally yoked kind of thing, and it was just, a, a, I had a rough childhood that way, but I, I tried to understand. And so I didn't ask a lot of questions. When my kids got old enough, teenagers, when they wanted to know, they'd sit my parents down, and my mother especially opened up quite a bit and would talk, and we got to record her because she told so many stories. Now your mother was quite a bit younger than your dad. 11 correct? years, yes. 11 years. And how did they meet? They met in Feldafing, Germany, uh, near Munich, in a French army relief camp. When the Jews were all liberated, many of them were sick and undernourished. And so they t set up places like Red Cross, United Jewish Appeal, and like they housed the people, the survivors, and they called them displaced persons camps. And they met in one of those camps. But they were from the same hometown. I think that was a common denominator. And my father was 11 years older. I don't know. In those days, I guess you didn't marry because you fall in love. You just kind of married because you knew somebody that well, might have been, been through, through the so same. much together. Yes. And did they ever talk about not, you know, belonging anywhere or? 
I did, my mother did say that there was no way to go back to Poland because their homes were destroyed, they had no family left, so it wasn't home anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think that was an option. So coming to America was a new start and a new life. And you know, they went to night school, learned, my father learned a new trade, and we had it hard, but we grew up. Uh, my family, we never did without. We didn't have a lot, but we worked very hard to blend into the American dream, which I'm living now, but my parents made it happen. So what did your father do as a? My father became a bread baker. And oh, my okay. uncle was a bread baker, so he taught him the trade and belonged to the bread baker's union. It was hard work because he worked all nights, long hours, and slept through the day. And it was in Bronx? It was in the Bronx, yes. And my mother kind of did some house cleaning and stuff to get by, but um, my father became an alcoholic, and unfortunately a lot of my memory was him coming home drunk and not a social drinker, just a private drinker, and it was embarrassing to me because my friends would see him, and I kind of got upset with him for that, but I didn't understand. I mean, how do you survive your whole family from a war and not, and he didn't talk about it. So he just drowned his sorrows that way, but we just lived. It was just my young life. And you grew up in the Jewish faith. I did. I grew up in the Jewish faith, and uh, my parents weren't religious Jews, but we were very tied to the Jewish cause. The Holy Holidays, when we'd celebrate Passover, we'd ask Dad, why is this? And I have a younger brother that was born in America. He'd say, it's the law. That was his answer for everything. It's the law. He didn't know why, but he said it was the law. <laughs> the law. God did an amazing transformation at that point in your life, um, yeah. taking you from Bronx and, and growing up. He certainly did. And to be in the place where I am now is surreal to me. I can't believe this is the way my life has turned out. I'm grateful, but it's, I never would have dreamed it. You know, and the title of your book is You Don't Cry Out Loud. And that just really touched me. Can you explain that a little bit? That was actually my mother's statement. When my kids got old enough to talk to her, they asked so many personal questions. I think my girls might have been 12 and 13 years old, but they wanted to know, and I'm glad that they did. Mom was a little bit easier talking to them for some reason. And so I think one of my daughters said, Grandma, how could you take that? I mean, how could you go through starvation diets and see all those people dying around you and just ask those kind of questions? And she made the statement. She said, you know, we cried a lot but you didn't cry out loud. And so when I wrote my book, I couldn't find a title. It just dawned on me. Oh my goodness. Sometimes we're all that way in our lives. You know, you cry inside for a reason and you just don't cry out loud. You carry it and you move on. You put your big boy pants on and... A lot of people don't, don't even realize what you're going through. Right, right. So I guess that was just the face they had to put on, you know, just to just survive, I guess. Now your life as a child was difficult. It was difficult because I said earlier that my father was 11 years older than my mother. And um, I guess because of all the losses that he suffered, he didn't know how to cope. He didn't talk about stuff a lot. So he drowned his sorrow in alcohol. And he would go to work at night and I didn't see him till in the morning. And there were so many times when I'd be walking to school with my friends or it'd be in the summer, I would be out playing and my father would be stumbling up the street of New York with a bag of rolls that he baked at the bakery and always asked us if we were hungry and wanted something to eat, wanted to take care of us. But he was so drunk, he would mm -hmm. slur his words. And I was so embarrassed. I didn't want my friends to see me, you know, deal with that. 
There were a couple of times when my brother and I, who's five years younger than I am, was born in America, we'd have to walk him up to the apartment and put him to bed. And my mother started to leave him. She was over it. She just didn't want to that kind of life. And I came home from school one day, and I was 12. And I'd walked home from school, and she had all of our bags packed in the living room, suitcases and boxes. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, we're leaving your father. At that time, she was actually seeing somebody. And I thought about that. I'd seen her, I'd seen her slipping and talking, and, you know, but I was young. And uh, she said, we're moving to California with Felix. And I stormed out of the house. I dropped my book bag. I said, I am not leaving my father. Because I knew he was hurting. I didn't mm -hmm. understand it all. And I was gone for two or three hours. Then he didn't have a cell phone. Mom was getting ready to call the police. And I cried and I ran around. I finally wound up at my girlfriend's house. I don't know. I just couldn't leave him. And when I got back home, all the bags were put away and it was never mentioned again, ever. She stayed with him till he passed away. God used you that day to yeah, save that marriage. Save the marriage, but still she, you know, and I, I look back now, she couldn't help it. She was stuck in a marriage that was not fair. Mm -hmm. And she came to America when she was 1920 and hadn't lived. Her childhood was taken away. She wanted to dress up and party and do stuff. And my dad was over it. He didn't care. So she did the best she could to cope with it. I didn't understand it not justifying that, but I didn't understand it. We never talked about it. My mother lived to be 95. I never asked her about it because I couldn't. I knew she was doing what she had to do to survive. Tell me, too, about what got you out of the situation. Well, how did you cope and how, how did you survive yeah. with it? Well, I loved acting. I was always, I loved being in New York City. You know, we'd go to Broadway shows and I thought I was going to be the next Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I could sing and dance a little, and my mother loved it. My mother loved Broadway show tunes, so she let me take voice lessons. She took me to dance school, and I started acting in high school and won the Theater Arts Award for my graduating class. I thought that was like a big deal. And so after that, um, I joined uh, the Actors Guild. I did some off-Broadway down in Manhattan. It was great one summer. And I went to college to study theater arts. Because of that, I mean, I threw myself into the parts that I was playing, and I loved it. It just took my mind off of, you know, all the other things in my life, and I knew I was going to make a career out of it. So wound up in Woodstock. That was the other Woodstock. I mean, we did oh, go to okay. Woodstock. We did go to Woodstock. <laughs> but we went to the Woodstock Playhouse and did apprenticeship there and did a, a course at Carnegie Tech uh, in Pittsburgh uh, one summer. And I met a young lady who was a folk singer. And she and I just started playing music for the fun of it. Just Is did it for Maria? The, Maria. Just did it for the fun of it. And we started singing at all the parties. We sat around and wrote songs. And lo and behold, we were at a party in New York City at the time. We'd landed a recording contract on Columbia Records. Don't ask me how that happened. And so we were performing in Greenwich Village, New York, wow. at a nightclub called Gertie's Folk City. And uh, we were just busy. But Gertie's Folk City changed my life. We were there for probably six weeks, and we had an apartment in the village. It was a great time to be living in. And New you York. were only what, 18? It was 18, 19. I didn't know what I was doing. And you Maybe had 19. What, two, did you have like two records? Or two? I had one record out on Columbia Records, and that was a big deal, a big deal, because Columbia, Simon and Garfunkel was signed to Columbia, and they were putting a lot of money in our career. It was just a great time to be living. And uh, things just moved in different directions. And I met a bluegrass singer at the nightclub of Gertie's Folk City, where folk music was popular. He was with a band, and he was a cowboy from Kentucky uh, with dark black hair and dark eyes. And he stole my heart that, that, that summer. And uh, 
our life just moved in different directions. So she wound up in California, and I got married two years later. And that, where did that take you? That took me to meet his family in Kentucky. And I had never, never met anyone like that before in my life. He's the baby child of 17 children whose father and mother were Pentecostal preachers in the mountains of Kentucky. Talk about a Jewish kid from the Bronx going to Kentucky to see that. What did his family think? Oh, I mean, well, I mean, a lot of his family thought I was really cool because I had long, straight hair with big, wide bell bottoms. I was the hippie in the family. And New York City accent, I didn't understand what they were saying. They didn't understand what I was saying. But his parents were very cordial, you know, and I'm, we'd already fallen in love and decided we wanted to change the world, the two of us. So it was, it was, it was uh, interesting. Was there any concern bet between you being Jewish and... My parents didn't approve, you know, but with a name like Isaacs, I didn't know till three months into the relationship that he wasn't Jewish. He didn't tell me any different. But by that time, you know, I thought, well, what's the difference? I'm not religious and you're not religious, so what does it matter? And so we just got married, but my parents were very much against that. His parents were very open to whatever. They were very kind to me. But we made it work, you know, then we had these three amazing children and, and then uh, during that process, I found the Lord as my Messiah one night in a little church due to a death in his family. Lily, tell me a little bit more about your marriage and your faith and how the Lord used that bond and really has given you a, a worldwide ministry now. Well, of course, when Joe and I got married, as I said, neither one of us were like, he wasn't in church at the time, even though his family was religious. And I was raised in Judaism, but again, I wasn't Orthodox. I didn't know a lot about Judaism, even though I was raised in it, if that makes sense. So we were married probably eight or nine months, and he had a brother that was three years older than he was, at 27 years old, got killed in an automobile accident. It was a terrible tragedy, and the family was devastated. And so I'd never been to a funeral before in my life. So the funeral was in a big church, and I went. And after the funeral, some of the family said, let's get together where my brother-in-law would have gone to church just before the family departed. Everybody went back to their states where they lived. and. So my sister-in-law asked me to go, and I thought, Ugh, you know, I don't go to church. This is not my thing. She said, oh, come on, just come. We'll go out to eat and have steak dinner after, and we'll just have, be a family. So I thought, well, I wouldn't be much of a family member, and I wouldn't be much of a wife if I didn't support the family during this tragedy. So I went that night. It was a little church out in the middle of the country in Ohio, actually converted garage. And I walked in, and I sat in the very last pew. And my husband sat on the other end of the pew. We were in the back, and there was a lot of grief there because of the death. Mm -hmm. But everybody was really kind and sweet and embracing, a lot of tears. And pastor got up and made it an altar call, said people to come forward to pray. And I didn't know how to do that. So I just got back, and I just fell on my knees in the back row, which I'd never prayed that way in my life. But something just compelled me to get down, and I, I practically put my coat over my head because I was ashamed to be there because of what I was raised. I mean, my parents, you just didn't believe in Jesus if you're Jewish. It's just not what you do, and I wasn't taught that. But that night, I just cried. I cried all the time. I didn't know what to say, because I couldn't say, Lord, save me. I'm lost. I didn't understand it. I didn't ask to know how to ask God to forgive me my sins. I didn't know I was a sinner. But I cried, and I cried. And so my girls wrote a song many years later that said, He understands my tears. And I really, the minute my knees hit the floor, 
I opened my heart up to learn about Jesus and God. And it was a process. It was months I really tried, and I thought, this feels good. Something about this feels fulfilling. And Joe and I would read the Bible at home, and I never read the Bible before in my life, not even the Old Testament. And it just started clicking, you know, it just made sense. But about two or three months into this, I had a cousin visit me from New York, and I was so excited about my new found faith, I took him to church with me, and he went back to New York and told my parents that I'd fallen off the deep end, oh, no. that I belonged to a cult, <laughs> that I was praying on my knees to Jesus. So unexpectedly, my parents called me on the phone, and my mother and father told me that if I didn't give up this crazy religion, I could forget I ever had a family. Mm -hmm. My father said he'd rather see me dead and buried, and there'd be a reproach to my family. It was awful. It was just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to lose my family. I did not. And, but I didn't want to lose what I found. Mm -hmm. So I made a decision in the moment, and I said, you know, I love you both, but I can't lose this feeling I have. And they didn't talk to me for months. But those few months made me learn who Yeshua really was because he was all I had. You know, I think a lot of people, they don't realize that the Old Testament is all about the New all Testament. All about the New. It's all it's about Jesus. It just, exactly. Totally. And if people would get into the Word of God, they would know that it leads to Jesus. Absolutely. So tell me what happened afterwards. So then, okay, so we started going to church, and a year or two later when my son was born, my parents received me back home to see them. We didn't talk about religion or anything, but our kids, at that time, Joe was a performer, so was I, so we just started singing locally in churches for the fun of it. We both had full-time jobs, then I started having children, and he worked, and I was a mom. But then people started booking us come to our church, come to our event, and little by little by little. And my kids were talented from the minute they could talk. I mean, they started singing when they were two or three years old. Then when they became young teenagers, they picked up their music that they loved. And we just became a family band and decided in 1986 to go full time. And we started traveling around and recording, and it was a dream come true, because I never dreamed that I would be married and my family and I would be singing in churches and doing what we do. But it's opened so many doors for us now. My I have three beautiful children and eight grandchildren, and we travel around the world still, and, and God's opened so many doors Grammy for us. Grammy nominations, Dove Awards, and traveling the traveling. world. It's just surreal, and I, I never dreamed my life would be where it is now, and, and I'm so grateful for the opportunities, you know. God had a plan, because this is what I love to say, what the enemy sought out to destroy, God already had a plan. I just love what he's doing in your life. Tell me what's next for you. Well, we're recording a new album, so we're really excited about that. And uh, we're going back to Israel in June of 2020. And I want yes. to talk about that. Um, you did an amazing ministry going back to Israel. Can you share? Thank it? you. Well, we go every year and a half, so we've been about 16 times. And we went uh, last year in 2018, and it was the... 2019. It was the 70th anniversary of Israel being a, a Jewish nation, so we didn't want to go empty-handed. So we decided, you know what, we want to give back. And with our history of Holocaust survivors, we wanted to bless the Holocaust survivors. So there are about 200,000 still living today. They're old and they're lonely and they don't have a lot. So we started a fundraiser about four months before we left and raised $100,000 that we spread out when we went to Israel. We visited 175 Holocaust survivors. We actually brought them to where we were. We sang Hebrew songs, we fed them a meal, we loved on them and gave away money. We gave them gift cards, we blessed an orphanage, we blessed Israeli soldiers. It was it's just our way of giving back. And that's a nonprofit we started in my parents' honor called Fishman Isaacs Israel Initiative. 
and we're still continuing. We're going back in 2020. We want to do the same thing. So it just feels good to do that. Now, is that on your website? It is on our website, and it's FIII.org also if people wanted to go. But we feel so good doing that, and I feel like I'm just giving back. Isn't it amazing how God takes us full circle? Full circle, full circle. Yes, yes, ma'am. This past year, I entered my mother and father's name into the Holocaust Hall of Remembrance in Jerusalem at Yad Vashem. And that was so rewarding. And since I'd been home, I'd received documents upon documents of my parents, what camps they were in, what years, when they were liberated. Oh my goodness, this year has been so revealing. It's just been unbelievable. I just wish I would have asked more questions, but I'm trying to continue it on reason I wrote my book and I tell my children, my grandchildren, you know, we Jewish people say never again, but if you don't know the facts, you can't say never again. So it's my mission in life to carry the story, keep it alive, and my grandchildren are so devoted as well. I'm so grateful for that opportunity that we have. And you're doing that. Thank you, and thank you for letting me share my story with you. Well, thank you your for, listeners. thank you for allowing me to come in and, and to share your story. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate you. You know, my friend, there are many things in life that we just don't understand and we don't have the answers, but our sovereign God does. And if you give your life to Him, He will bless you and take you to places that you would never imagine so that you can share your faith with others that will give Him honor and glory. Do you have a question or comment about today's podcast or want to check out the latest television episode? You can find me, Terry Squires, and all of my guests at todaysnashville.com. Cornerstone Television wishes to thank all our faithful viewers whose consistent prayers and financial support have made this program possible.